Turn in your copy of the scriptures or scroll in your Bible app, if you would, to the book of Galatians. Uh, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 27. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 27. Uh, If you are physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word and follow along silently as I read aloud, beginning in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27. This is what the word of God says. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So every year we take a break from what we're preaching through to have a Christmas sermon series, and this year is no different. We are temporarily setting aside our walk through the gospel of Luke to take some time to focus on and to prepare our hearts to celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Last week, Pastor Brad preached from Philippians chapter 2. This week, I'm preaching from Galatians chapter 4, focusing specifically on verses 4 through 7. Now, since we haven't spent time in Galatians, I thought it might be Odd just to randomly pick up in verse chapter 4, verse 4, without any context or background. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll go back to the beginning of the chapter. And so look at verse 1. When you look at verse 1, you see that those who decided to add chapter numbers and verse numbers to the Scriptures so we could find our way around them, which I'm grateful for, they decided for some reason that it would be a great idea to start a chapter with the words, I mean. I mean, it's like, it's not even like mid thought. It's almost mid-sentence, right? He's saying, I mean, like he's, he's in the middle of a, it seems like he's in the middle of a, 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 a thought pattern, and that's where they started to put in that chapter. And so I don't know why they did that, but I thought that's not very helpful. It's not like therefore, and he's hearkening back to something he had said beforehand. It's literally mid-thought, almost mid-sentence. And so I became frustrated with the people who did that and decided to go back further. And so I decided to go back to verse 27 of chapter 3 as our starting point. Before we do even that, let me just tell you a little bit about the book that we'll spend but one week in. And so keep your finger or your place somehow in Galatians chapter 3. Just flip back two chapters to the very beginning of the book, Galatians chapter 1. I want you to see how Paul starts out this book. It's rather unique, and I'll tell you why. Uh, He says in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, an apostle, 
not for men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. Now that's very, that's very typical classic Paul that he, and classic letter writing at that time that you start out saying who the sender is. Then he says who he's writing to, to the churches of Galatia. And then in verse 3, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, here's where it gets different. Because usually at this point, Paul goes into expressing his love for, his appreciation for, uh, the fact that he maybe misses these people, wants to visit them at some point. He goes into some sort of uh, happy time. But right then, verse 6, he's like, all right, here we go. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. This is the only book, this is the only letter Paul writes with no commendation to its recipients whatsoever. He's like, I'm Paul, I'm writing to the Galatians, sit down, get a pen, we got to talk. And he goes right into what he is so upset about, what he is so concerned about. It's a corrective, it's a corrective letter. He is correcting false teaching that crept into the church in Galatia, attacking the very core doctrine of justification by faith. They were buying into this false notion that in order for Gentiles to become Christians, they needed to first become Jewish proselytes and submit to the Mosaic law before they could become Christians. And so as you go back to, turn back to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27, where we're starting today, uh, when Paul says something like, uh, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We can understand where he's coming from, right? He's saying as many of you who are in, like, we are all on the same page. We're on the same team. Doesn't matter where we started from. As many of you has been baptized into Christ, we have put on Christ. He's trying to say, it doesn't matter how you got here, whether you were a Jew before you were a Christian or whether you were a, Gala- a Gentile before you were a Christian. Either way, you were going to hell before you were a Christian. And so where we are now is what matters. We are one in Christ, Now, when you read in verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, we read that and we might picture water baptism, perhaps similar to what we celebrated a few weeks ago across our entire church family as people celebrated uh, and publicly professed uh, their faith in Christ. And we publicly celebrated along with them their new life that they have in Christ. It was a glorious Sunday. It was actually, I mean, it was a, a very well-attended Sunday, and that's not what Paul is talking about at all. How ironic would it be if Paul is writing a letter to correct false teaching, to re-emphasize the core doctrine of justification by faith alone, for him to then connect water baptism to salvation? Like, that's not what he's doing at all. That would be another form of works-based salvation. That's not what he's talking about. He's referring to, in verse 27, when he says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, he's referring to the immersion, if you will, of one's life into Christ. The fact that those who truly come to Christ in salvation have every area of their life impacted as they immerse their life into Christ. Now, I will grant you that water baptism gives us a great picture of that, right? The before and after where uh, beforehand the baptismal candidate is completely dry and afterwards they are very like not 
dry, right? Every square inch of their body. So it's, it's a great illustration to remind us that the life-changing, soul-saving power of the gospel affects every area of our life. This changes everything. And so that is what Paul is referring to in verse 27. He's saying that anyone, Jew or Gentile, anyone who has placed their trust in Christ, who have been given the gift of faith, who have been saved and their life has been immersed in Christ and all he has for us, anyone who has done that has put on Christ. Pick it up in verse 28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this is one of the most, what I refer to as hijacked verses of the Bible these days, uh, and especially these days. And by hijacked, I mean people take this verse and take it to a place that it was never intended to go and do so by force for their own well-being. And this is done especially by two groups of people. The first group are those who use this verse to back up the false and historically new teaching regarding the differences that we have in gender. Uh, Some believe that they can be whatever they want to be despite the way God created them. They believe in gender fluidity and believe that they can choose to identify as whatever gender they want, even though God created them anatomically, biologically, and genetically, either male or female, as we read in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. And so they look at Galatians 3.28, and they're like, look, it says right there, there is no male and female. So there's no, why are we even focusing on these things? That's one group of people. The other group of hijackers are people who take this verse and believe that it teaches that there should be no difference in gender roles even within the church or home. After all, they say, Paul is writing to a church, a New Testament church, and he's telling them to ignore the differences and focus on and celebrate that which is most important, and that is Christ. Therefore, there should be no differences in the roles that men and women have in the church and in home and in life. Now, if one of my kids sent me a text message and said, my stomach really hurts, I feel nauseous, and I text back, don't eat, just lay down for a while. But if I texted to the wrong person, or somebody how, in some way, shape, or form sees that text, and someone else gets it and says, you know what, Pastor Peter cares for my soul, he, he loves me very much, don't know, I, I'm just never going to eat and just always lay down. I think that's probably what his message is to me. Uh, that would be what we call in theological circles, crazy. Because I was not writing to you, I was not writing about you, Uh, there's context behind that text. My kids said they feel nauseous, and I said, ooh, probably shouldn't eat, maybe want to lay down, see if that helps a little. But it's not applicable to just whoever reads it at any time and for whatever reason. Uh, Context is king. Since the Galatians believed that salvation came differently to different people, based on their starting point, Specifically, if you were a Gentile, you had to do Jewish things before you could be saved. Paul says, hey, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. In other words, we just, we're either saved or not saved. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Does that make sense? So God did not inspire Paul to write this to say, put away the differences. No, he's just saying, it doesn't matter how you started. It matters where you are and where you go. We are either saved or unsaved. 
Pick it up in verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Awkward chapter break. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Uh, On our way into church today, Jonathan was with me, and we reflected back upon a time uh, when he was nine years old, and we were at the beach, and I took him for a walk, and we went out on the fishing pier at this beach that we go to all the time on the Carolina coast, and I took him out onto the fishing pier, and I gave him a knife, and I think it had his name inscribed on it, and I did this with him, and I sat him down, and I said, you know, I want to give you, I don't remember the exact words I said, but I basically told him how much I loved him, how uh, much I love being his dad. I'm so glad that he's my son. And that I wanted to give him this because I trusted that he will use this knife in a responsible way. He could use it to whittle sticks and all this other stuff. But I wanted him to, what I tried to, to get him to realize is that uh, throughout his life, uh, God will give him certain strengths and certain skills that I believe that he can use uh, for, for great good or for great evil. And I said, this knife is something that you can use for great good or for great evil. It was a kind of a tiny knife, so probably for great good and tiny evil, but still, you can use it for good and evil was the point, and that I trusted that he would do that which was wise uh, with that knife. And it was this moment of like, wow, father, son, I trust him, I love him. And it was a fun kind of core memory. Did the same thing for Justin as well uh, when he was around the same age. Uh, when Emma reached that age, I didn't, I, didn't, uh, I didn't get her a knife. I don't feel like, I don't know. I, I don't know. I tried, like, that just seems like a, I don't know. I was trying to think of another thing to give her, and I didn't think giving her a knife would go super well. And so I don't know. I didn't give her, I didn't give her anything. And, um, <laughs> but I love her a lot. And uh, when Silas, you're like, okay, continue doing the knife thing, knife thing. I forgot, all right, don't judge. It was busy, we were busy, I'm a busy person, and I forgot. And now it's weird, because I'm going to give him a knife and be like, I, I trust that you can do well with this knife. And he's going to look back at me, and he's going to be like, I've shot a gun. I've been like, I know, I, I know. It's just a weird, so I don't know, I'll probably do something for him at some point in time. Uh... But here's something that uh, Jonathan got to do with me, that Emma will get to do, that Silas will get to do, that Justin probably will get to do. I take a cross-country train... I'm a train geek. Like, I'm part of Facebook groups. It's weird. I know weird facts about trains. You either, right now, I just divided the room. You think really highly of me, or really, your opinion of me just went down. But anyway, all that to say, I'm a little bit of a train geek, and so I am taking, uh, Lord willing, I'll take Emma on a cross-country train trip in the spring, which I did with Jonathan between 8th and ninth grade, between middle school and high school. I'll do that with Emma, and Lord willing, I'll do that with Silas, but I never did that with Justin. I started that after he had already uh, gone off to school. And um, yeah, so that's how we've rolled. Why am I telling you all this? Um, Because in Jesus' day, the line between boyhood and manhood was way more definitive and way more distinct than it is today in Western culture. I think those times I have with my kids are special, but they're not like religious or super consistent, as you can see. And, and, and they're special, but it's, it was way different in Jesus' day. Like, 
me giving my son a knife, it's not like I'm like, you know, like knighting him or something like that. Like it's just a little time of me saying, hey, love you, very much proud of you, praying for you. I trust that the Lord's going to make you a great man of God. But in Jesus' day, the line between boyhood and manhood was way more distinct, way more definitive than it is today. Most ancient cultures had a specific age when a, when, when a, a child, uh, especially a boy, would be deemed a man and would receive both the privileges and responsibilities that came with adulthood. The Romans had a ceremony called toga virilis. The Jews had and still have a ceremony called the bar mitzvah. The Greeks had a ceremony called apatoria. And so when a, when a, a Jewish boy was under 12 years old, uh, and a, well, actually, when a Jewish, a Greek, or a Roman boy was under 12 years old, uh, the boy was under the absolute control of his father, right? Which is similar to my young children, like under the absolute control of their parents. But on the first Sabbath for a Jewish boy, the first Sabbath after the boy's 12th birthday, that would change. Uh, There would be a ceremony marking the date and transition that took place and the transition one makes from boyhood to manhood. That was a bar mitzvah. Uh, For the Greeks, this didn't take place at 12. It took place at 18 as a sign of of a, a young man's coming of age, his long hair would be cut off and offered to the god Apollo. Romans would take their toys and, and, and offer them as a sacrifice to the Roman pagan gods. It symbolized the putting away of childish things, similar to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, uh, when I became a man, I put away childish things. That was actually a thing that would have called something to the original readers' minds. And so in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 1, when he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Check this out. With incredible wisdom, one might even say God-given wisdom, Paul uses this illustration of boyhood to manhood that both Jew and Gentile alike could relate to, right? Because they all had a ceremony in their culture of going from being a child to being an adult. And what he's saying is that a child slave and a child heir are similar in that while they're children, they're both under the direct authority of those who watched over them. And so uh, a child heir and a child non-heir had a very similar life. Like when you're an, whether you're an heir or a non-heir, when you're six, you're just like six, right? Like, like you're under the control of those who are taking care of you, parents and people who are given charge over you. Um, you have basically the same amount of freedom, namely none. Both are under guardians. Both are managed. Verse three says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, uh, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And so, uh, what, see what Paul's doing there? He's saying, we, which is an important word, he's not speaking French, we, uh, all of us, we who are Christians, regardless of where we came from, uh, whether we were Jews before we were Christians or Gentiles before we were Christians, we, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, I don't think he's talking about the secular or the pagan because then he couldn't say that to Jews, right? So I think when he talks about the elementary principles of the world, he's just saying like, hey, listen, all of us were buying into some sort of false teaching uh, before we came to 
Christ, uh, the elementary principles of how we viewed life, how the world worked, value systems and practices and such that were elementary and therefore insufficient and inaccurate. And then verse 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, because Christmas actually happened, because God sent his son into the world, whether we used to be an heir or a slave, an heir or a non-heir, a Jew or a Gentile, we received adoption as sons. He's telling the Galatians, quit focusing on where you started. It doesn't matter that you started as a Jew and then became a Christian or you started as a Gentile and then became a Christian. You both started as sinners by nature. You both started without Jesus. We all were hell-bound and hell-deserving and only because God sent forth his son have we been adopted. And so all who believe, all of us, the same way, regardless of how we started, we inherit the same identity and eternity together and all because Christ was sent into the world when he was Merry Christmas. Uh, Sarah, my wife, is the oldest of five kids in her family. Um, And one of her siblings was adopted. Now, if she was to introduce you to her siblings, she would not say, hi, I am Sarah, and uh, my maiden name is Graham, or as Southerners say, Graham, and I uh, have... uh, three siblings biologically, and then there's this one that we added on. She would not say that. She would say, these are my siblings. She wouldn't say, these are the ones who are actually born of the same parents, and this is the one we kind of like imported. She wouldn't do that. She would say, these are my siblings. We'd go down the line. There's no distinction because those who were um, biologically her siblings bear the last name Graham. Those who were adopted as her siblings bear the last name Graham. They are the Grahams. Does, does, does that make sense? And so it doesn't matter how you started. It's where God brought you. It's where God brought you. Stop focusing on heir, non-heir, slave, free, Gentile, Jew. All of us who have placed our faith in Christ receive sonship. Receive, we are adopted as son and receive everything that comes with it. In chapter 4, verse 4, we read these words that I want to focus on. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, which brings us to point number one. Jesus's birth was perfectly timed, perfectly timed, and so is everything God has for you and for me. Jesus's birth was perfectly timed, and so is everything God has for us. Galatians 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, uh, when all the stars had aligned, when at just the right time, God sent forth his son. Uh, We read this similarly. There's other places in Scripture where God says at just the right time, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5. In your outline, 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and following. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given what? At the proper time. Jesus' birth was perfectly timed. And so is everything God has for you and for me. God's perspective on time is different from ours. 
What do I mean by that? Well, it doesn't mean that God doesn't understand time, like he's in heaven and he's not limited by time. So he's like, what's this time you speak of? That's not, that's not what I'm saying. Of course he understands time. When God says something's going to happen for 40 days and 40 nights, guess what? It happens for 40 days and 40 nights. God speaks time. He gets time. Uh, Jesus rose just not on any day. He was supposed to rise on the third day. He rose not on the first, second, or fourth day. He rose on the third day. God gets time. He understands time. But God's perspective on time in its totality is different from yours and different from mine. In your outline, you see 2 Peter 3 and verse 8, which says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And again, that doesn't mean God is above time or can't tell time. But in the grand scheme of things, when it comes to the big picture, the whole story, when it comes to eternity, God's perspective on time is very different from ours. That's why Christ said he would return soon, but it hasn't been soon by any human measurement. But it's soon according to how God sees soon. It's just, it's his perspective on the grand scheme of time. God's perspective on time is different from ours. And here's why this is a big deal. Here's why I'm trying to drive this point home. If you don't remember that God's perspective on time is different from yours and different from mine, uh, we'll be tempted to think he's running late on things that you think would be better on if he acted now. Or, or, or you'll be tempted to think he's acting too soon uh, when you look forward to how a story would end, but God ended it in a different way. He ended it sooner by way of a job that is no more, a relationship that is no more, even a life that is no more, perhaps one God called to eternity way sooner then you were looking to part with that individual. Or perhaps by means that were way different than you thought their passing would go. And so it's a big deal to understand that God's perspective on time is different from yours and mine because if we don't remember that, you'll be tempted to think he's running too fast or too slow, that his clock is early or late. And that's a big deal because to think his clock is a bit fast or a bit slow is to ultimately accuse God. It's to believe he's let you down. It's to believe that he has overlooked you or he's run right past you. It's to believe that he's forgotten or that he doesn't really know what's best or that God's best is not necessarily in your best interest. It's to believe that God has this big plan and maybe it'll work out for you or maybe it won't, but guess what? He doesn't care. He he just has a plan. If you fit into it, great. If you don't, well, that's it. Too bad, so sad. It's to believe that he's forgotten you or he doesn't really know what's going on or that his timing is off or that he is off. And friends, there's nothing, being, there's nothing worse than being tempted to accuse God. Uh, Satan loves to accuse the brethren. He loves to accuse Christians. He loves to accuse God. He would love to have you along in riding that train with him. But there's nothing worse than being tempted to accuse God or to doubt God's goodness or to doubt his sovereign control. Satan would love that. God hates that. And you should too. God's perspective on time is different from ours. Now, 
I took my time on that last subpoint because I want you to understand uh, why this is a big deal. I'm not just camping out here because I like to talk about God's timing. I, I, think, this, I think this affects our hearts and our minds more than we realize. I think wishing God's timing was different or that his clock was a little faster or a little slower is a precursor to deeper and darker sins that come dressed as no big deal. Like, who among us doesn't think this every, every once in a while? And so I wanted to do my best to get your attention. I hope it worked, but I'm going to move these next three subpoints a little faster. God's perspective on time is different from ours. Uh, letter B in your outline. Not only that, but God's timing is perfect. God's timing is perfect. Uh, Psalm 18 and verse 30, the psalmist says, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Not only is his perspective different, but his timing is perfect all the time, every time. Uh, And then letter C, since God's timing is perfect, we can wait on him. Since God has a different perspective on time, and since his perspective on time is perfect all the time, every time, We can wait on him. Psalm 37 and verse 7 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. I love that picture that's painted for us in the Psalms. It's not just wait on God because I can can wait on things and, and, you know, I'm waiting. I am waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. But it's not just wait, it's be still and wait. You're not, you know, you're behind someone in a checkout line who's taking longer than you wish they would take because they forgot they're not the only person on the planet. And so you're behind them and you're like, I don't know if I'm going to make what I have to do. Like, this is actually making me late because this person decided to tell their life story to the clerk. And sadly, the clerk is interested. And so you're sitting behind there and you don't know, like, I'm not, where's this going? With God, we can not only wait, But look, we can be still. We don't have to wonder like, is this going to work? Just like I'm wondering like, did this person forget that the sun is at the center of our galaxy and not them? Did this person, like we don't wonder that about God. Like did God, did God just just forget about me altogether? Is he ever going to pull through? Is this ever going to happen? We can wait and not only wait, we can We can be still. Lamentations 3 and verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. And finally, letter D, our willingness to wait on the Lord reveals how much we trust him. The amount that I am willing to wait is directly correlated to the amount that I trust God with that which I do not know. Proverbs 3, 5 and following, a very popular, very common Bible memory, children's Sunday school verse that we maybe hear if we've been walking with Christ for a long time. Yeah, 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 I know that verse. But if you read it slowly, it's a pretty powerful verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Not like, hey, I just got to tell you, the more you can trust in the Lord, it'll be really good. Like, the more you trust him, the less you try to interpret things, it's kind of, that's probably going to work out for you. There's like a do and a do not. Do trust the Lord with all your heart. Do not 
lean, not lean on it less, like literally hold your understanding altogether suspect because God has a different view than you. Lean not on your own understanding. Verse six, in all your ways, acknowledge him. He's in it all. He's in it all. And he will make straight your paths. Verse seven, be, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And so you sit there and you're like, I get it. I'm seeing it. I'm seeing what you're laying down. Timing, trusting God. This is, this is good. What I also see is lights and trees. And how, what are you, what are you, where are you, how is this related to Christmas? Like, what are you doing? Well, in Galatians 4 and verse 4, Paul said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And he's basically saying that uh, God sent his son at the perfect time. The perfect time. And so you say, well, what makes it, like it would have been bad if he came earlier? It would have been bad if he came, like what makes that the perfect time? I don't really know. I'll throw out some guesses. I think it was the perfect time for the Jews because finally, after years and years and years, like centuries of idolatry, the Israelites had ditched idolatry. They were done with it. That was behind them. They ditched it all together during the Babylonian captivity. Then while they were exiled, they built synagogues and these were used for worship. They were used as schools. They were even used as courts. But the bottom line is there was a common gathering of places for the people of God. A phenomenal place that Jesus would use to teach large numbers of people and proclaim the gospel as well as correct the sins of the Pharisees in front of a large number of people. They also had the completed Old Testament, which is really helpful because that's really key in proclaiming the arrival of the Messiah. It was the perfect time for the Jews. It was also the perfect time culturally because Alexander the Great had established Greek, both language and culture, throughout the known world. And by God's grace, that continued to dominate in society long after the dominance of Roman culture waxed and waned. And so that means the first missionaries who went out and evangelized the lost world and planted churches and told people about Christ, they had a common language to use for teaching, for witnessing, for even for worshiping together, that Jew and Gentile alike could come together and could worship the Lord with the same language. It was also the perfect time, politically speaking, because of what is known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that Rome had instituted. There was economic stability. There was political stability during which the earliest preachers and teachers and evangelists could share the gospel, could go out, could plant churches. They could move about on a phenomenal road system that the Romans had already established. Now, there may be other reasons that this timing was perfect, but there aren't less. Those are at least some of the reasons that Paul said when the fullness of time had come, when all, all things had come together, God sent forth his son. Now, Do you know when Paul said those words? Not at the first Christmas. Not even a year after the first Christmas. Not even at Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Not at his ascension. Galatians was written around the year A.D. 49. And has been read over the centuries, and here we are reading it in 2023. 
And do you know how we know the timing was perfect? First, because God's word telling it's perfect and, and God's timing is always perfect. Duh, granted, it was obviously perfect. Here's the second reason we know why God's timing was perfect. You ready? Time and distance. Time and distance. That's how we know that God's timing was perfect. The more time, the more distance we get from things in life, we're usually able to better understand a bit about God's timing, a bit about God's will, a bit about the circumstances he deemed right for us in that very time. It comes as a result of time and distance. Like, trust me, when the shepherds go to visit Jesus, the baby, and the angels came down, and they're like, we should go check this out. And they go check this out, and they meet Jesus. They weren't walking on their way back saying like, bro, this is such a perfect time. What with the Pax Romana and the beautiful world? Like, they didn't, they didn't have that perspective in that moment. They're not talking to each other like, you know why this is so perfect? Because of the whole Greek thing, how most people speak Greek. It's going to be great. In about 30 years when they go and plant churches, it's going to be way easier because they all have a common language. They didn't know that. Why do we know that? Time and distance. We can look back and say, oh, look at that. Look at what God did. That comes as a result of time and distance. Uh, We all drive different cars. But we all have this in common. Uh, I trust that on your car, the windshield is big. I trust that the windshield is clear. Might not be perfectly clean. It's probably pretty clear. Let's be honest. Like, even when it's dirty, you can still see through it. It's big and it's clear. It shows a lot. The windows next to you, not as big as the windshield, still pretty big, pretty clear. Like, you could see what's next to you, like, without, without a lot of hindrance. Like, you could look right. There it is. It's right. I could see exactly what's next to me. I can see exactly what's in front of me. Pretty large, pretty clear. Then we have this rear view mirror that's super small. It's in an odd place. It's easily knocked about. Even if it's not knocked about, if someone's barred your car, they'll move it to adjust for them to see, and then you have to adjust it. No one has to adjust the windshield. Right? When Sarah drives my car, I'm not like, oh, I'm going to adjust the wind. No, that's fine. That stays in place. The windows stay in place. But I'm going to have to adjust the rear view mirror. And it works, but it doesn't totally work, right? You still have blind spots through the rear view mirror. Do you love it when, and just mirrors in general, like you stare into the mirror, you touch the right side of your face, and the image of the person is touching the left side of their face. Like it's, I don't know if that's black magic or something, but it's, it's just, it doesn't totally work. It's not as good as looking out through the windshield, where you're just like, I see what I see. I see what I see. In life, The rear view mirror is clearer and more helpful than the windshield. Totally counter, it goes against every grain of my body. That I can see more through a tiny mirror looking back. That I can understand better where I've come from through this little mirror as I look back than I can as I just look around. The rearview mirror is clearer and more helpful than 
the windshield. You can look back on what has happened, and thanks to time and distance, you can usually see clearer than you could when you were there. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. So like, I'm sitting at an intersection in life, and you're telling me that as I pass it and look back through that silly little mirror, I will understand more about that intersection than when I'm right here. Yeah. Yeah. It goes against every fiber of my being. It probably goes, it grates against your nerves. But when we look back, we can say, I can see clearly now, Johnny Nash. I can see clearly through this little mirror what God has done. When I was there with all the glass around me, I didn't have a clue. I thought I had a clue, but it turned out to be very wrong. My parents were married in 1975. They were divorced in 1985. My dad left my mom. In that moment, all we knew was heartache, turmoil. Our lives were turned upside down in every way, shape, or form. You're sitting there at that juncture in life, looking around, and all you see is confusion and pain and heartache and change that nobody saw coming, that nobody wanted to see coming. God, in his kindness... Use that to change my mom's heart, to bring her to a place of need where she would realize she needs more than just a husband. She needs Christ. That her great, actually, her, that her greatest problem in life was not her marital status or not being a single mom or not having to work two jobs. Her greatest issue in life was that she needed a savior. And so people would come into mom's life and say, like literally, it was like, what you really need is a savior. And my mom's like, Pfft. You need a savior. You need a, I need a savior? That man needs a savior. Let me tell you who needs a savior. He needs some Jesus. All right? You need Jesus. Why? Because looking around, she's like, I've been done wrong. I need, I, let me, I'm, a, I'm a sinner in need of a savior? You're crazy town. But God would do that over again and over and over again and again and again and again. And God changed mom's heart and God made my mom a believer and drew her to himself and she was a changed woman and she started doing everything she could to introduce Jesus to us as imperfect as she could be. I had like stickers in my lunchbox, keys for kids, all sorts of stuff. Kids are trading bonkers. Remember bonkers? Back and forth. I had no bonkers. I had like carrot sticks and a key for kids. The Bible verse. Doing everything she could do to Get us to understand the gospel. God blesses it by God's grace. I'm a believer by God's grace. My sister's a believer. And we look back on it through the rear view mirror and we can see what God did. That does not mean divorce is the greatest means of evangelism. That just means look how God has redeemed something that would be horrible and make something good. That when we were there looking around, we're like, Seems pretty jacked up. But with time and distance, it makes more sense as we look back. Sometimes the best thing we can do as we move forward in life is to look behind us. Makes no sense. I would not recommend you drive that way. I don't know. Pastor Peter says we just got to stare at the mirror. Please don't do that on the way home. 
Don't do that. But in life, sometimes the best way to move forward is to look back. Now, the obvious question maybe is this, like as a point of application, when have you seen that be true of you, right? When, what can you look back upon and say, now I can see clearly now. Now I get it. Or now it makes sense. And that's good to do. We should do that. It'll help make us grateful. Gratitude is uh, the, 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 just the greatest, the greatest little seed for tons of spiritual fruit. But I want to pivot like, I'd love for you to look back and say, when can you look back in your life and see that? I want to pivot and I want to challenge us to do something that I think is much more difficult. Way more difficult. Are you ready? There's something in your life right now that you either A, don't understand, and so you feel a certain way about it, or B, you think you fully understand because the windows are big and clear and the windshield's right in front of you. You're like, I see what I, like, I see it. I know what I know. It is what it is. And so the question right now that I want to pose to you is this. Yes, when have you seen God do this in your life in the past? I want to know. What's happening in your life right now that you feel so strongly about one way or another or that you think you fully understand one way or another but it would be better for you to discern through the rear view mirror than the windshield? Can you apply it now? It's great when we can get a certain distance and look back and say, oh, I see what God has done. But sometimes the best way to move forward through life is to look back, to look behind us, to be reminded of God's faithfulness to us, to his people throughout the ages, to call to mind that we understand more with time and distance than we do without it. And while it's great to look back with gratitude, oh, how much better would it be if those times past helped us with the time present, that we might be able to live less anxious lives, less angry lives, less self-pitiful lives, less wise in our own eyes lives, because you can say, you know what? There have been so many times when I've looked back on God's faithfulness and it's made more sense and he has blessed me. I'm not going to wait until I have to look back in order to trust him. I'm not going to sit there and thinking like, okay, when I, when I get it, I'll thank you. Like when, it makes, when I can look back and say, I see what you did, I'll thank you. But until then, here's where I'm, here's where I'm at. We'll see. But instead say, I'm going to trust him in this situation right now. Now, I'm going to believe he has his glory and my good in mind at all times. I'm going to believe that right now. Now, I'm going to be anxious for nothing. I'm going to make all my requests known to God. Now, his peace, which surpasses understanding, will guard me and keep me and will be my all in all. Guys. There's something going on in your life right now that if the Lord tarries, you will have more understanding of by Christmas next year. Mark my words. You will. Don't wait till you get there to trust him. Don't wait till you get there to thank him. 
trust that just like you can look back on your life in times past and see God's faithfulness over and over again, can you wait and be still because he's shown himself to be faithful over and over again. You can presume upon his future grace. You can presume upon the grace that he will give you to help in time of need. Instead of saying, when I get there, I'll be super grateful, but I am not, I, I can't see it now. Who cares? Look in the rearview mirror. You've got so much you can look back upon. You can just trust that as you move forward in life through faith, you look at the rearview mirror and you're like, wow, look at what he's done. I can move forward in faith. Wow, really dangerous, crazy intersection that I'm at in my life right now. But you know what? As I look at my rearview mirror and everyone's looking at me like, what are you doing? Are you looking back? You should be looking around. You should be angry. You should be upset. You should be anxious. You don't know how this is going to end. But you're like, you know what? I can look back. And I can move forward in life because I'm looking through that rearview mirror and oh, what I can see through that tiny little mirror that I could never see in the windshield when I was there. There's something going on right now that you'll understand better at Christmas next year. Something going on right now that you'll understand better in five years. And you know what? There's probably something going on in your life right now that you will understand in heaven when you no longer see dimly as in a mirror, but can see with face-to-face clarity. Galatians 4 and verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Point number two, Jesus was the perfect savior for sinners like you and me. I want you to see that in the text. Uh, born of woman, it says in verse 4. Born under the law. Now, these things are important. First of all, since God sent forth his son, and not just a prophet, not another prophet, but his son. Since God sent forth his son, he could be our savior because he was not born with a sinful nature. Now, Philippians 2, verses 5 and following. Pastor Brad preached through these verses last week. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He is very God. Letter B, since he was born of woman, like we see in Galatians 4 and verse 4, he could be our substitute. Uh, But he emptied himself, uh, Philippians 2 and verse 7, by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Uh, Letter C, since Jesus was born under the law and obeyed the law perfectly... He could redeem us and change us from slaves to sons. Galatians 4, verses 6 and following says, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so it's not just like, yeah, you two can join the club. Yeah, you two can be involved. Sure you can. Just sign up and you're kind of an outsider, but sure, you paid your dues and you could be. No, it's not that at all. Abba was a term of endearment that would be used by young children when they were calling their father. It means daddy. It means papa. The word is intended to remind us that we are children. And as such, we need a daddy. It's not just, I need a, I need a, I need a ruler, I need a savior, I need a sovereign lord. And you need all those things, but you know what you need more than anything? You need a daddy. You need a spiritual and heavenly daddy because you're just a child in God's eyes and you're in his family. And here we see this 
this ministry of the Holy Spirit that God uses to not just call us in, not just add our names to a list, but to bring us right into the family. That whether you're an heir or not an heir, you don't look at God distantly. You're not like there's some people who are close to God, but I'm not. I kind of came from a weird background. The people who are from a Christian home, they're the heirs. And the people who are not from a Christian home, kind of afar, you can all call him daddy. He's our daddy. We're his kids. He loves us equally. Doesn't matter whether you're an heir or a non-heir. God's brought us all into the fold. That's one of the ministries of God the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa. Elsewhere, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law couldn't save. The law couldn't bring in. No one looks back in the rearview mirror of their lives. I'm so grateful for the law. That law, am I right, man? But by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law that we could never be fulfilled, that we could never fulfill, might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so friends, what about you? What about you? This God we speak of, this God you read about, this God we talk about, there are some of us, most of us I would say, within our church family, who love him and know him, not just as like, he's God, he's, he's good, I know he's good, he's, he done me right. I look in the rear of your man, I'm like, thanks. We know him as our Daddy. He, he brings us in close. He, he shelters us under his wings. He protects us. He's our refuge. He's our source of strength and help in time of trouble. I just want to know, is he that for you? Do you know that God is still, he's still adopting, still growing his family? My in-laws adopted one of Sarah's siblings. But guess what? They're done adopting. They're for sure done adopting. I'll tell you all about it. Like, like they're, they, they're older in age. They're in the grandparents' season of life. They're done. God's not done. He's not. He's not like, um, it's been a while. We got a big family. We're not done now. He is still adopting constantly people, adding them to his family. Not just putting them on the good list from the naughty list, just adding them to his family, adding people to the list of people who could call him not just God, but Daddy. And you need to know that today, that can be you. That if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that if you believe that God raised him from the dead, if you believe that your penalty has been paid, that he is your substitute, that he is your savior, and that he triumphed over death, and that you benefit from all of that, you can be saved. You can be adopted you cannot just have a God who's like, now, now we're cool. Oh, you can have a daddy that you need more than you realize. It's my hope and prayer that today you would say, I do. I, I do believe. I believe that God did what he said he would do through Christ for me. And I'm going to live my life, a life of repentance. I'm going to try to change my life to be 
more pleasing to him. Not to earn his salvation, but because he deserves my worship. He deserves me dedicating every aspect of my life to him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you sent your son on the very first Christmas, that we celebrate uh, the ability to be adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God, that uh, whether we were heirs or non-heirs, whether we were Jews or non-Jews, whether doesn't matter where we have started, you have saved us. You've sent your son to die for sinners like us. You are building your kingdom with sinners like us. And so, Lord, we are grateful that you have done that for us. Lord, would you work in the hearts of people who know you not right now? Lord, would you draw them to yourself? Would you give them faith? Would you cause them to want to believe in you, believing in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and save them for your glory, save them for their good, and do it all for your good name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.